Well, last week we finished up our last on This Is Our God. And so we're going to have a short little series that's going to bridge us between now and the Christmas season on the book of Titus. It is a short series because it's a short book. It's only three chapters in the, the book of Titus. And so this is what God has from this book. You know, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to Titus. And Titus was a church planter in Crete. And incidentally, the book of Titus is the only book of the Bible written specifically to a church planter. Going into Crete, where he was assigned, was one of the most immoral places in all of the ancient world. Sort of, except it was an island, and it was known as a hub for piracy. You know, think of it as like a first century Tortuga. Imagine trying to plant a church among the cast of the Pirates of the Caribbean. That is what Titus was tasked with uh, to go and plant a church in, in Crete. Historians say that people there lived every moment of every day drunk. Lying was, cel- was a celebrated for lying. So to Crete was to lie. To say stop creting was saying stop lying. That's how like synonymous those, the, that word became in the Greek language. The historian Polybius said that nowhere in the ancient world were politicians more corrupt with public policy tilted toward the people in power than in Crete. Sounds like a place that needs the gospel message, doesn't it? Heading to this island. Even Paul says to Titus in uh, chapter 1 verse 12, he says, Of the Cretans... A prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So Paul even says their own teachers on the island call themselves this. You know, this is crazy. You know, some of you are like liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And, you know, I feel like you're describing my work. That sounds familiar to people in my family, which this book makes this makes the book of Titus incredibly relevant for us today because in a lot of ways, our society has become a lot like Crete, an immoral place like Crete. How do you respond when Christianity is continually belittled and despised, where most people find it irrelevant or even silly? And Paul to answer those questions that we're going to kind of unfold over the the next several weeks. Paul has one concern for Titus in this book, and that is the truth that leads to godliness. The truth of the gospel that leads to godliness. Now think about how crazy that must have fell upon these people in Crete. Godliness. What is godliness? Why does godliness matter a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness that phrase the truth that accords or the truth that leads to godliness is that that is the theme that is coming up over and over again through this short little book of Titus the pursuit of godliness 
is not something that you hear about in this world. Things in the world about how to live your best life, how to find happiness. But Paul drives home in this book, we as a people should be pursuing godliness. God's purpose in the gospel is to create for himself a God-loving, God-like people. That's what godliness means. That was the point of the gospel. When God saved us, he saved us for himself. You know, sex, drugs, crime, but we often fail to talk about what he has saved us to. It's a different thought there. The point was not saving us from something, but saving us to something. So therefore, one of the ways to authenticate true faith from false religion, Paul says, is in how it cultivates a godliness in your heart. Not a busyness, not a godliness in the heart. There is a difference. Religion will drive an external conformity. But true faith will produce godliness in the heart. There are a lot of false teachers around in Crete and also today in our world. And Paul says that the true gospel creates godliness in your heart. False religion just gets you busy. It fills up your schedule. You learn this. Don't do this. Do this. Drink this. Use these do's and don'ts. So what I want to do today is show you why the gospel produces godliness in a way that nothing else can, why every other religious approach won't work, and then have you ask some evaluation questions about your own faith. Is your faith producing godliness? Incidentally, for those of you who make New Year's resolutions every year, and we're getting ready to come to that, you might even be thinking about, oh, what's going to be my New Year's resolution? Getting close. We're getting Why most of those don't work you think about to yours this past year, you probably broke it and you probably didn't com- complete it. So let's get started here. How the gospel produces godliness. Verse 11 of chapter 1, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly l- lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So, you saw a list of things here. What produces these things that Paul listed out here? Self-controlled, upright, godly passions. What produces these things? You know, explain to me how I can be more self-controlled, more upright, You know, what would the answer of a greater willpower? We need to be more educated. You know, that's a phrase that you'll hear more. We need more knowledge. Need more accountability partners. We need more self-reflection. These are all kind of buzzwords or buzz phrases that you might hear in today's world. But Paul's answer is the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness, no to worldly passions, and to live a life self-controlled. The grace of three areas that we're going to look at today. Upward, we looked upward to the appearing of the glorious God. We looked backward 
to who got who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and then forward we wait because he will come again and purify us upward to the glorious god who gave himself for us and is coming back for us backward to the price he paid for our sin and forward to what he has made us and is making us into so why does in us upward the gospel it redirects our worship you see sin problems that i've often explained they start as worship problems what are we worshiping the original sin paul said in romans chapter 1 verse 23 and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, they stopped the worship of God and worshiping the world around them. You see, we were created as beings to worship God our and Jesus our Savior. But we instead have taken that and we are directing it to other things that we were not created to worship. So ungodliness starts with a worship of something else that we were not created to worship. You see, when it says there in that Romans passage, and gave glory, mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, he's referring to all of the images that were created in the Roman world. You know, the temple of Zeus and Diana and all of these images that they made that they were worshiping back, that, back then. He's saying, the glory belongs to God and not those things. Glory in Hebrew, the word kabod means weight or importance. We gave the weight we were supposed to give to God in our lives to something else in creation. You put the, the two together and you have a pretty good definition. We gave it an importance and a beauty to things more than we gave it to God. Looks at, we look at it today as I can't be happy unless I'm financially secure, unless I have a good family, unless I have respect, sexual pleasure, creature comforts, all the good things. We gave them a weight of importance. We are worshiping those things that glory that belonged to worshipers. As much as we are born to inhale oxygen, we were born to worship God. You see, because of that, every single person who walks this earth, just like they need oxygen, they will worship something. You can have someone say, I'm an atheist, or I don't believe in God, doesn't mean they're not worshiping something because they are every single person worships something we're created to do. We have a list of things we deem most essential to life and happiness. And then we arrange our lives to possess these things. To change sin at the heart level, which is where God wants to change it, he has to change what we worship. And until that happens, all changes are super, superficial. We are like the guy who dutifully serves one wife, then secretly wishes he was with someone else. So Paul Tripp says, if we worship our way into the gospel, and the gospel alone does that, it redirects, it reignites our worship because it shows us God is better, God is more glorious than any idol we could worship in this world. If you love something, you don't need to be commanded to love it, right? So you have this kind of unique commandment that 
is called the, the dilemma of the great commandment. Yeah, that's what Martin Luther called it. You ever thought about this? It's a commandment. We're commanded to love the Lord our God. If you don't, if you love something, you don't need to be commanded to love it, right? You just, it just happens naturally. You know, things like, I love my wife, so I enjoy, I love kissing her. I love red meat. You don't have to command me to eat a steak. I will eat it. I enjoy closing my eyes for a few minutes. You don't have to command me to take a nap on Sunday afternoons because I love those things. The things that you love, you do not need a commandment to do them. The dilemma is if you love something, you don't need a commandment to do it. If you don't love it, no command can change that. That's the dilemma. So what will change it? Let's look at this. Let's go back. Let's look backwards. The gospel restores this gratefulness. In that passage in Romans that I just showed you, Paul identifies a second component of the original sin. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Man, is that not our society today? Their foolish hearts were darkened. They could not see their fool, did not honor him as God or what? Give thanks to him. A thankless heart. How many of us think of thanklessness as a core sin? We don't think of it like that. We've never thought of being thankless as being a sin. You know, one of the things we will see as we move into this season, and you'll notice it, giving day to Turkey Day. You guys have already seen it over the last few years. Why do you think that's happening in our society? Because to be thankful, you're, you're being thankful for all, you know, all the things that you all mentioned here today. For our world, it comes unnatural to them. Because as Romans just told us, their hearts are darkened. And to be thankful for food and fam- family, what are they, whom are they, to whom are they being thankful to? You, you catch the conundrum for the, for the unbelieving world? So that's why they don't want to call it Thanksgiving Day. They truly do have an unthankful heart because it's been darkened because of their th- their, their rejection of God. When you are thankless, not only do you rob someone of the glory that belongs to them, you convince yourself, we're telling God, we do not need you. When we are thankless toward God, not only do we rob God of the glory belonging to him, we delude ourselves into thinking that we are self-sufficient. We forget that every breath we have comes from God. Every blessing in this earth is by the grace of of God. We are like the moon. The light shining out of our lives is reflected light, borrowed light from the sun. Move the sun and we go dark. Leads to independence, which then just leads to more sin. So how does the gospel transform us? The gospel points out that our inability to save ourselves 
because of our inability to save ourselves, the gospel points out that without God, we are hopeless. We are lost. Jesus had to do it all. Jesus completed every single act of salvation on our behalf without Christ. I'm done. I'm lost. So we see upward, backward, the gospel restores gratefulness, and forward, the gospel raises the expectations. In the gospel, we see what God is making us and the future he has for us. He puts in us a taste, a hunger for the future. John the Apostle, he wrote, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. These things deliver us from sin at the heart level. You become a person who is eager, who is zealous to do good works. By contrast, uh, Paul says, religion cannot do these things. We're going to look at this in, in Titus here in verses 10 through 16. The Jewish heresy he's going to talk about here, the exact same, these, the, the, the truth of the gospel, what Paul describes here characterizes false religion. Verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all evil, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both Their minds and their consciousness are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient. So what this passage shows us is why religion cannot produce godliness. Why religion cannot do it. It emphasizes, religion emphasizes in an an, adherence to rules rather than an internal transformation that happens inside of you. He says there are empty talks, adherence to Jewish rituals and commands in verse 13. It uses verse 11. God is a means to an end. He's a means to houses or cars or to live a better life now. Religion, in fact, leads to the exact opposite of godliness. Instead of gratefulness, What does religion produce? Religion produces pride. Some of the most prideful people I've ever met in my life are some of the most religious people. Maybe you've experienced that. Those who excel at religion say, look, I am, because I've kept all of the rituals. I've done all of this. If you ask why you're going to heaven, and the religious person will tell you about what they have done. It is a pride of the heart instead of what Jesus has done on their behalf. Or if you fail to live up to the standards, you fall into pride's evil cousin of despair. I'm just terrible at this. 
I can't keep up. I can't do everything that, that the, the religion or the church tells me to do. I might as well just makes me feel good. Instead of producing more godliness, both pride and despair lead to more sin. Instead of full surrender, religion calls for only partial commitment. If salvation is a negotiation, you do things and God lets you into heaven as a result, then there is a limit to what you have to give God. But if he saved you when you literally had nothing, another one, instead of worshiping God and using things, you worship things and use God. That's what we just saw in that Romans passage a few moments ago. Last one, instead of hating sin, you negotiate with it. Your concern with sin is to avoid punishment. How close can I get to the line and still be okay? How close can I dabble in this sin and not feel the effects of the sin? People who love God hate it so badly that they want to stay away from it. After being transformed by the gospel, the sin becomes more loathsome to you than the punishment. Religion, you see, keeps you busy with rituals, commands, words, but religion never religion never curbs the sin. If anything, it encourages it. So Paul says, many religious people claim to know God. In verse, even though their lives are religiously crazy busy, the shape of their hearts is, he says in verse 16, they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You see, the gospel changes that. The kind of God, Paul says, leads us to true repentance by reinvigorating worship, restoring gratefulness, and raising expectation. The great pastor in London, Charles Spurgeon, from the 19th century, he says, when I thought God was hard, but when I found God was so kind, so good, So overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could have ever rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Christianity is not turning over a a new leaf. It's the power of a new life, not resolve to live better, but a resurrection to new life in Christ. You don't need power of the Holy Spirit, which comes not by exhortations to do better, but by an event, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, who came to earth to take our pride and our punishment and is coming back like our prince, our bridegroom, and mighty warrior to take us to be with him forever. You see, here's what religion says. Religion says you don't need to sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You should read your Bible every day. You should witness news to someone struggling with, you, with those issues. To them, it feels like a condemnation. But what the gospel says is not, you should not, but you need not to. You need not to lose your temple. Why? Because God is in control. You need not to give yourself to money because God is a better treasure. You need not to make yourself a slave to romance for God is your fulfillment and companion. You need not to be controlled by the opinions of and accepts you the way that he created you to be. See, sin is always making promises and the gospel exposes those promises as false. 
and points to God who is a bigger and better than anything sin offers, and that is good news. It's like I often tell you, the gospel is not good advice. It's good news. So in light of that, Paul urges us really as he finishes out here this part, he urges, he urges us to evaluate the religious Sunday morning when you hear us here on Sunday morning. As you are out in the week, what religious teachers do you listen to? The grace of God towards you is the power of life. And so if you are hearing that, praise God. But if you're hearing a list of things to do, check that against God's word. Every religious tradition tends to lose the thread of the grace of, instead of a grace-based salvation. If you come out, if you've come out of a, a ritualistic tradition, you probably had a, you know, the, the idea of church attendance, prayer, code of ethics, emphasize, go to church, light the candle, say the prayer, avoid the sins. And, and many of these things are wonderful. They're not bad things. They're not sinful things to do, but it's not what I do, what I learn, what I experience that brings the power of new life. It's beholding what God did for us through Christ on the cross. Well, that changes our lives from the inside out. So that's why we see that these New Year's resolutions <laughs> to be a better you, that ultimately fail. Because it's not about you, it's Christ working in you that changes you. Many of these things in the world are wonderful, but it's not what I do. It's what he has done. You know, a song I used to sing as a kid at church, maybe some of you did, is would you be free from your passion and pride? There's to Calvary's tide, there's wonderful power in the blood. You see, Satan wants to separate the gospel he wants to put religion over here and detach that from the saving power of the blood of Jesus Christ. He's fine with you going to church in places that don't emphasize what Christ did for you on the cross of Calvary. Paul tells the Cretan believers, and I say it to you, churches should be avoided at all costs, no matter how long your family has gone there or how many good people go there. You have to avoid those that want to teach a works based religion. Do this, keep that, and you'll feel better about yourself. That is not the gospel message. That is detached from the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul tells Titus to have nothing to do with the counterfeit gospel. All they do is promote rebellion and sin in the heart. Only the gospel gives life to the grace of God. Number two, evaluate your sincerity as a believer. Do you see evidence of him changing you? Really, when you encounter Christ, it should hit you like a Mack truck because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a transforming power. I, I, and, and hear me clearly here. I'm not talking about perfection because we know that that is not, and we'll know. But the closer we come to Christ, the more aware of our imperfections the more aware of the pride in our heart, the more aware of the sin that we must confess to a holy God. You see, growth is a deepening love of grace, a greater desire to know God and to understand his love and to pursue godliness. If this, 
you've never come to understand the gospel of the grace of God. The vision of it has never really settled in your heart. In verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Have you experienced the grace of God? Has it broken you that Christ would save an awful, wretched person like me and you? If that is not something that has broken you and driven you to your knees in thankfulness to then pursue godliness. Salvation. We as a people must be a thankful people for what God has done to us that leads us in our pursuit of the godliness in this life. Let us pray.